Whew, deep breaths, glug of wine, and then <laughs> record the podcast. Welcome back to the Europolex podcast. I am Ewan Healy, and with me is my friend and colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. I am uh, cold uh, and surrounded by about 15 centimetres of snow, but I'm good. Well, not not where I'm recording, but outside. (laughs) But other than that, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm cold as well. Unfortunately, where I am, we don't really have the benefit of that much of a winter wonderland uh, scenario, but it's still bloody cold. So I'm sitting here wrapped in a blanket, drinking a hot coffee at 8 p.m. <laughs> uh, but yeah, all good. I mean, yeah, what what's to say? Well, what's to say, Gabriel, is that this is episode 30 of the podcast. Oh, can you believe? 30 episodes. <laughs> Would you believe that? That's crazy that we've done this 30 times. Yeah, so sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, it is our, of course, Valentine's weekend special episode. It's not, it's not that special. It's just another episode, but it just happens to be Valentine's Day, which is uh, exciting if you celebrate such things. And this episode is going to be as romantic as any of our others. Uh, we will be bringing you, of course, electoral and political news from across the continent. And later in the episode, we will be joined by our first ever returning guest to the podcast. The New Statesman's international correspondent, Ido Vok, will be back with us to tell us this time um, about Italy, Mario Draghi, and all of the drama that's going on therein in Europe's most polled country. But first, here's a little message on how you can support us and our headlines from across the continent. Europolex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europolex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. Welcome back. Starting with electoral news, we're going to visit one of Europe's smallest and most peculiar countries we talked about on the podcast, which is Liechtenstein, which on the 7th of February went to the polls to elect all 25 members of the Landtag. Now, we say went to the polls, as we conventionally would, but actually almost all votes were cast by mail for this election for COVID, but also because there is a strong mail voting tradition in Liechtenstein. In fact, a lot of polling stations were actually only open for a few hours on election day to allow any last minute votes, as most people were expected to vote by post. Now, as for the results, the race to become the biggest party turned out to be the closest we have possibly ever reported on. Well, no, not quite, but definitely in Liechtenstein and, and in a lot of countries, only 23 votes, 23 votes separated the Patriotic Union from the Progressive Citizens Party, and both ended up with 10 seats each. The parties will govern in a coalition, but it remains uncertain which party will get the position of prime minister. At the current moment, it stands between Sabine Mounani uh, from the centre-right 
Progressive Citizens Party, uh, an ex-EU diplomat who could become the country's first female leader, um, versus the incumbent prime minister, Daniel Risch, who is from the also liberal, also centre-right, Patriotic Union. So keep an eye out for who could be the new prime minister in this little tiny microstate. Gabriel. Yes, I was just thinking back to all of us on the Liechtenstein results page as the the staples went back and forwards for the, those votes. Wonder how many of us there were. Um, but yeah, it was it was exciting. Now on to Catalonia then. So that's this is our next event in the European electoral calendar. And many of us will find it to be one of this year's most exciting regional elections. So voters in Catalonia, which, as most of you all know, is an autonomous community within Spain, they'll head to the polls on Valentine's Day, in fact. So this is happening sooner than what is constitutionally necessary, but still long after when it might have happened if it wasn't for COVID-19. That's just obviously delayed so many elections over the past year. Former President Kim Tora actually called for snap elections a year ago, so last January in 2020, but obviously the pandemic came in the way. So since the last elections uh, that took place in 2017, Catalonia has been governed by pro-independence parties that have had a very slim majority in the parliament there. And it's looking like it will once again be a tight race. Uh, so very interesting to, to follow. There have been large movements in the polls, though, since 2017, sort of mirroring the national picture. Obviously, the big, big eye-watering thing in the polls is the liberal um, Ciudadanos that's collapsed by more than 10 percentage points since then, from being the biggest party to being one, one of the smaller, minor ones. For most of this period as well, the center-left and nationalist uh, Republican left of Catalonia that is part of this ruling uh, coalition has had a comfortable lead, but uh, that's changed quite recently actually throughout throughout the last year and especially the last few months when the Spanish Social Democratic Party uh, has seen a boost in support. So that's the party that leads the national government as well. And I believe that in the last 24 hours or so, the nationalist parties have gone together and actually promise not to govern with the help of the Spanish Social Democratic Party, even though it's now gaining some momentum. So given the polarized nature of, of Catalonia, it'll be very interesting to see the results and then how a government is, is formed after that, given the, the obvious gridlock based on the, the whole issue of, of its independence. So do follow us for, for coverage of that. And if you're following us for coverage of Catalonia, you won't be able to miss coverage of Kosovo because on Valentine's Day as well, they will be going to the polls. Kosovars will be going to vote in National Assembly elections. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the centre-left LVV is leading by quite some distance, despite the fact that former Prime Minister Alvin Kurti has been banned from running in its list. Now in Kurti's place, at the top of the list, Kosovars will have the chance instead to vote for acting President Vyosa Osmani. But Alvin Kurti is still very likely to be the Prime Minister, even if he's not a member of Parliament. Osmani, on top of that, will be almost definitely the next president or will become a permanent president, despite the fact that she is the current temporary president. Of course, you'll see coverage of both elections across our social media, because of course, we aren't doing anything else on Valentine's Day, because our one true love is election results. And no person, man, woman, or other can come between us and our beloved. Yeah, I know. It's sad. It's sad, but it's sort of true. <laughs> so... 
if you think Liechtenstein is small, then it can still be beaten by none other than the Vatican. So moving away from electoral news and Valentine's Day themed stories, we bring you news from the Catholic epicenter where a new historical decision is being made currently. So for the first time in the Vatican's history, Pope Francis is designated a woman for the undersecretary position in the Synod of Bishops. The Synod works as a counseling committee for the Argentinian Supreme Pontiff and now includes uh, Nathalie Becard, who's a 52-year-old French sister from the Congregation of Xavier. So in 2019, Becard, together with four other women, uh, as well as one man, uh, joined the Synod as consultors. And at the time, that was considered a movement of significant progress for female representation within the, the Roman Catholic Church, which is obviously very patriarchal. Now, the Vatican as well is taking a step further by having the first woman to have you know voting right in this Roman pontiff's adversary institution. So a small, small step. Um, but still a step towards more gender uh, representation within the Vatican. I was going to say, when do you think we'll have the first female pope? But I'm pretty sure there's been a female pope in the medieval period, or at least rumoured to have been a female pope. But anyway, in some international news that we just thought we wanted to bring you from the other side of the planet is the uh, repercussions and reverberations of a attempted military coup against Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi. As you might have heard, as probably will have heard since our last episode, the country's military uh, overthrew the government of Aung San Suu Kyi, the state councillor, on February the 1st, uh, arresting her and other members of her party, the National League for Democracy, claiming that results of November's elections for the two chambers of the country's Assembly of the Union, as well as state and regional parliaments, had actually been illegitimately won. Now, the military junta with which the democratically elected government has coexisted for several years in a sort of governing agreement, carried out the coup the day before parliamentarians elected in November were supposed to take office. There's been resistance to the coup by tens of thousands of protesters who've been marching daily across the country since the coup in the former capital Yangon, as well as the city of Mandalay. Large protests even took place in Naipito, the country's capital, which is a, a planned city purpose-built by the military in the early 2000s, which means it's more of a, a military city than a population hub. So seeing protests there was surprising to observers. Now, despite criticisms leveled by the international community at Aung San Suu Kyi, who, of course, in the past won a Nobel Peace Prize, but has received a lot of criticism recently for what people have seen as a attempted genocide or ethnic cleansing against Rohingya uh, Muslim minority after she was released in prison in 2010, um, the US and the EU have still called for sanctions to defend Aung San Suu Kyi's right to be the elected leader of the country despite uh, those human rights abuses. So there's a, a very intricate web of difficult issues and nuance going in in Myanmar at the moment. But it's pretty clear that this uh, military coup which has gone on uh, is uh, not popular amongst the population of Myanmar. Oh, definitely. Um, and I just can't get that fitness instructor out of my head. <laughs> you know, that viral video of the fitness instructor doing her um, workout with the tanks uh, and the cars in the background. Absolutely. I'll never forget. It looked like an art installation. Absolutely. If you haven't seen that video, I would go and watch it. It's quite funny. Um, it's like an inadvertent Tiananmen Square moment. The person being photographed in front of the tanks. Yeah. 
So finally, we have to touch on Italy. Uh, obviously, there's a lot going on there in terms of government crisis, a new government forming. I'll discuss this more in just a moment with Ido Vok, as Ewan says. And it's a bit, it's one of those stories where it's hard to even talk about because so much is happening literally as we're speaking. Um, but to give you sort of the lowdown of, of what we know uh, at this moment, so it's Thursday night. What we know is a former European Central Bank president, Mario Draghi, looks set to become Italy's next prime minister, as multiple parties have said they're giving him their backing for his proposed unity government, so it seems like he has it in the bag at this point. He won early support from Matteo Salvini's right-wing Lega and the central-left Democratic Party. And just um, recently today, um, We've heard the news that the Five Star Movement, which is the largest party in the Italian parliament um, as it stands, has voted internally by 59% to support Draghi's government too. So basically this all but confirms that he'll become the next prime minister, giving him a clear majority in parliament, which is quite, from the outside looking at Italy, quite remarkable that you have these three very different forces all backing up this <laughs> this banker uh, technocrat uh, moving forward. Uh, he doesn't have universal support, though, Draghi, uh, with the National Conservative Brothers of Italy that currently pulls in third place and is clearly on an upward trajectory um, in public opinion, uh, deciding not to support his government. Obviously, as I said, this is fast-developing story. We're likely to learn a lot more about what this new government will be. And uh, for all of us outside of Italy and outside of you know European Central Bank <laughs> politics, we'll find out more about Draghi and what this all will mean for not only Italy, but for Europe. We'll obviously be, be posting updates as and when we get them. And it'll also be really fascinating, obviously, to see how this impacts polls in Italy as it's a real shakeup of, of the situation there. By the way, dear listener, you can now find us on Telegram. Yes, we've joined Telegram this week so that we can get directly into your encrypted inbox every day of the week. 365 days a year with every piece of breaking political news so you won't miss a thing, especially amongst all those algorithms that might want to try and hide Europolex posts from you. Use Telegram and you can get us direct. So head to Telegram or t.me forward slash Europolex. Now then, in our repeating segment that we've done many times before, where we compare two national political parties uh, on the flip side, that's the name of the segment, this week we are heading to the Low Countries to hear about two political parties in Belgium. The first party that I want to introduce you to is the only major party in Belgium which is bilingual. If you didn't know, Belgian politics are divided along linguistic lines between the Dutch and French-speaking parties representing each of those communities. These parties then, on the national level, caucus as party families in their national parliament based on the political inclinations of the linguistic parties. Now, PVDA-PTB, or 
the Workers' Party of Belgium in English, is a left-wing Marxist party which advocates for a, a unitary, which is the, the end to federalist rule, a communist state. Now, what's special about this party, as I've said, is that it is officially a bilingual party straddling the regional language barriers. So the party holds 17 seats in the national parliament, 12 in the lower house and five in the upper house, one in the European parliament, as well as representation across French and Dutch regional parliaments in Belgium, which is incredibly rare in Belgian politics. Now, a little bit of the background of this party. It is a member of the International Meeting of Communist Workers' Parties, uh, so it's affiliated with the GUA NGL party in the European Parliament. The party was uh, founded out of a student movement in the latter half of the 20th century, which saw the historic and now defunct Communist Party of Belgium, which was founded in the 1920s, as too weak a party, arguing that it had compromised too much with capitalist forces. Uh, with heavy Maoist and Stalinist influences, uh, as well as Marxist-Leninist early days. The party was formally founded in 1979 and would contest its first federal elections in 1981, where it came 14th with 0.67% of the national vote, which actually, because of the Belgian political system, left it as the largest party by vote share to not receive or win a deputy in the parliament. The Workers' Party received a, a similar level of support in every election from then until the 2010s, where it saw a surge in support, which left the party to win three consecutive record highs, eventually resulting in winning their first two deputies in 2014, before tripling that representation to 12 deputies in 2019, carrying 8.6% of the national vote share, including well over 15% in several cities and regions of Belgium. Good for them. And on the flip side, another party that resists the linguistic dichotomy of Belgian politics, in a slightly different way, however, is the centre-to-centre-right Christian Social Party, or CSP. So uh, CSP is one of a handful parties set up to exclusively represent the German community of Belgium. The small community along the eastern border elects one MEP, which the CSP holds, as well as electing a 25-seat regional parliament, of which CSP retains six seats. The joint largest party in the regional parliament, that is, and the largest opposition party. CSP has held the single German-speaking MEP since its introduction in 1994. So the CSP was founded as part of an alliance in 1945, but has been running as an independent party since 1971, with the first election it contested on its own being in 1974, so three years after that. And that was for the German-speaking parliament, in which they won 12 out of 25 seats. Since then, the party has been the largest German-speaking party until 2019, when they fell narrowly behind the party a pro-DG in terms of vote share. Uh, CSP advocates for Christian democratic and liberal economic values and is the sister party of the influential Belgian political parties in the French and Dutch-speaking regions, CDH and CDNV. So alongside those two parties, the CSP is a member of the European People's Party in the European Parliament. But yeah, it's um, one of the most high-profile uh, German language parties in Belgium. So now you know that. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu.
Hi, everyone. So with me now to discuss the current governmental drama in Italy is Ido Vok, who's the international correspondent at The New Statesman and um, our first ever recurring guest, uh, actually. Welcome back, Ido. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. Of course. So more specifically, the reason I asked you to join today is because you wrote a piece for The New Statesman earlier this week titled Can Super Mario Draghi Save Italy? Sort of outlining the reason um, he's emerged as the very likely to be new prime minister of the country and sort of his background and what him taking over the role might mean. So first of all, who is this man? Obviously, he's not a party political figure. So a lot of people interested in politics, even people that might, you know, be sort of clued in, might not know who he is unless they're very EU-focused. So can you just give us an overview who this man is and how he's emerged the position where he'd be called upon to take on the, this position? Yeah, so Mario Draghi is um, most well-known for being a former uh, president of the European Central Bank um, during the Eurozone crisis. So he was uh, president of the ECB from 2011 to 2019, I believe, um, which is obviously uh, at pretty much the peak of the European debt crisis and the Eurozone crisis. Um, and he is well remembered from that time for being, quote, the man who saved the Euro. So he, in 2012, gave a speech uh, for which he is best remembered, which is uh, in which he uttered these words, within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. So he really gave a very clear signal at a time when the future of the European currency was seriously in doubt and uh, things like Greece's exit from the Eurozone were seen as a possibility. He gave a very frank, very clear signal to the markets and to politicians that the preservation of the European single currency would be his overarching priority. And so that's what he's remembered for today. He's he's kind of widely respected in Brussels as someone who um, is very good at his job. Uh, he's kind of he's seen as a fairly consensual figure. There was a bit of conflict with Germany during his term because Germany was very worried about uh, inflation and, and they feared yeah. his policies might be inflationary. What a surprise, it's Germany. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before that, he, uh, he trained as an economist, uh, studied alongside Paul Krugman and under Franco Modigliani, uh, both of whom would go on to win Nobel Prizes in economics. Uh, so he studied at MIT um, in the US. And then he was governor of, uh, of the Bank of Italy and then moved on to the, to the ECB and has now been dragged out of kind of semi-retirement to head the government of Italy. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Like, it's obviously happened a few times now that when they faced a, a crisis um, due to sort of the, the parliamentary makeup, they've, they've, they've turned to sort of neutral bureaucrats. I think it's quite interesting that that's, that's something I think in most other countries would be seen as quite controversial to turn to a non-party thing, but it seems to be sort of working for Italy, at least as a crisis option. So as you say, he's sort of um, seen and become now this consensual politician and candidate, which is very interesting because it literally spans from Lega on the right, they're no longer the most far-right party in Italy, with they're sort of being pushed from the right as well, even though they're they're historically at very high levels in, in the polls at the moment. And then obviously all the way towards the more centre-left-wing parties too. But especially with Lega Nord, that's now Lega, who obviously 
emerged and grown based a lot on their very fierce Euroscepticism. It's quite remarkable that they'd vote in favor of this sort of, <laughs> I mean, you don't get very much more Euro bureaucrat than, than um, Mario Draghi. So how, how do, how's that come about, do you think? And why are they willing to, to accept him as, as prime minister? Yeah, so, so two things on that. The first is, as you rightly point out, Draghi uh, being tapped by the president to, to lead a new government, a so-called uh, government of experts or technical technocratic government, is part of a by now fairly well-established tradition in Italian politics, where basically um, when things get, the, the way it's perceived and the way it's kind of stereotyped is that when things get too tough for the real politicians, um, you just come along and tap a technocrat. You bring a guy who's out, who's perceived as being outside politics, um, kind of usually economists, uh, to to head a new government that is above party politics. This is now, I believe, the fourth time that it's happened. So the first time was in maybe 1993. Three, but I might be wrong. But anyway, but it's a it's a fairly well established um, tradition in Italian politics, and I don't think this actually made it into the piece. But several people I spoke to for the piece pointed out that, of course, you can't have a government that is divorced from politics because because when you're in government, you are taking political decisions, right? Yeah. Um, you're you're deciding what to cut. You're deciding what to spend more money on. You know, you have to kind of appease different factions in, in parliament and so on. And all these things are political decisions. And so it's this kind of, it's this fairly like slightly bizarre idea that you can escape party politics, but of course you can't, um, which is why these governments only end up lasting usually not much more than a year or so. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, so it's a very kind of odd, uh, odd system. Um, and one person I spoke to said it it would fuel kind of an anti-politics culture and a mistrust of politics because there's this idea that, you know, the politicians are just there for, for the good times and when things get a bit too tough, you just bring in a technocrat, which, you know, is, is not great. Um, yeah, and so on the, on the Liga point, um, yeah, so Italy has very long been a very Eurosceptic country, so... Opinion polls, uh, even last year, were showing that about 40% of Italians were in favour of leaving the EU and the euro. But the recovery fund, so the, the EU's 750 billion euro recovery fund, has really seemed to have changed um, changed the calculus in Italy. Italy is, is, is slated to be the single biggest beneficiary of the recovery fund with about 200 billion euros, a huge amount of money. And it really seems to have led to a shift in how the EU is, is perceived in Europe. And that has led to people like Salvini, to, uh, you know, who, who spent years saying that Europe was terrible and kind of he styled himself as interior minister as like, you know, kind of Orban style figure raving against Brussels and so on. Um, and now he's giving speeches saying, uh, you know, my, my kids are Europeans and they want to grow up as proud Italians and proud Europeans. And um, he told reporters, our aim is for Italy to be a lead player in Europe again. So, so yeah, so it really seems like it's pretty much down to the, to the recovery fund. And I think what that shows is that Brussels is also good at playing politics. And this has kind of, it's really shifted the balance in, in some countries, which traditionally have been more sceptical of European integration, in particular Italy, which stands to benefit quite significantly from the recovery fund. So obviously, as you say, these drug is one now in, in a line of 
of economists, bureaucrats to sort of take one for the team. And if you're going to pick one year or around that, that amount of time to do so, obviously, the coming year will be, well, an intense one. Obviously, everyone's hoping that uh, at some point throughout the year, we we'll sort of start emerging from the immediate sort of crisis handling of the pandemic. But obviously, in that, in the wake of that, there's this huge economic and social crisis to deal with going forward. And you mentioned your piece as well. Obviously, Italy, even before the crisis, has struggled with very much long-term, almost institutionalized issues when it comes to its um, its its economy. So, what I, I was curious, like, what do you think? Do you think it might be a good thing for someone neutral to take over at that point to take tough decisions, or do you, do you agree with you said you spoke to someone who said it, it's likely to just fuel anti-politics um, sentiment? I mean, if you're absolutely everyone I spoke to was unanimous in saying that Traki is is uniquely qualified to 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 do this job, and in in many ways it's an easy job, right? Because uh, so the previous technocratic government, the previous government of experts was Mario Monti's in 2011, and obviously their mandate then was to cut because it was the height of the of the Great Recession, and Italy was particularly badly hit by the Great Recession, and so they had to implement an austerity agenda. Obviously. Now is a very different situation because number one, the, the kind of fiscal orthodoxy has changed, and number two, they have all this money from from the EU. That, so, so it's obviously a lot easier to spend than it is to to cut. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a it's a it's going to be very difficult. And and again, the the thing to remember is that there are no kind of there is no way to escape politics. He might be qualified, he might have an easier job, but ultimately, he is still going to be leading a government which is going to have to take political decisions and negotiate with parliament um, and negotiate with the various factions in, in cabinet and so on. And politics just means choosing what your priorities are, choosing what to spend money on, choosing not what to spend money on, choosing where to focus your energies and so on, all of which are political decisions. And as you rightly note, there are lots of kind of long-term trends and, and problems in the Italian economy, which predate COVID and outlast COVID, as well as obviously the immediate problems of COVID, all of which require some kind of prioritization, some kind of choosing what to act on and what to not act on, which are ultimately political decisions. And so he will have to take those political decisions, whether or not he has been tapped as a politician. So finally, I wanted to go one step above this and think about um, European level politics. Obviously, it's a very interesting model time at the moment with the UK out of the EU, Merkel stepping down, Macron starting to plan for his uh, re-election campaign next year. So we've sort of gone from this sense of quite a, a stable number of leaders of the big countries, except for, for Italy, that is. And given all these economic decisions that need to be taken over the next few years, do you think there's a potential that we'll see Draghi take a more visual role? Like, do you think in other e European countries will people become more aware of, of who he is and, and sort of what his, um, his deal is because of this situation? I know it's something you mentioned in your piece, because I'd say probably Conte has not made a huge impression outside of Italy. 
Yeah, um, it's, it's a really interesting question, right? So if you think about it, um, Merkel's going to be standing down later this year. Macron is going to be preparing for re-election in pretty much a year, April next year. And then uh, Conte is going to be replaced by Draghi, who's a huge figure. Um, he's a really kind of well-respected figure, well-known in Brussels, uh, known on, on the world stage. And so there's going to be, and, and, you know, he'll probably last it. The, the consensus seems to be that he will last most likely until January next year when parliamentarians will choose a new president of Italy in a contest for which he is the leading candidate. So, you know, he, he won't have that much opportunity, he won't have that much time to to make his mark on, on European and global politics. But nonetheless, you know, the, the replacement of someone who, as, as you point out, you know, didn't have that much influence in, in Brussels with someone who is hugely influential at the same time as Europe's most powerful leader, Angela Merkel, stands down and Macron prepares for, for re-election. Might shift the balance of power to more, to tri more tripartite uh, arrangement where traditionally, obviously, in, in Brussels, especially after Brexit, um, the so-called Franco-German uh, engine has been the, the driving force in European politics and Italy, although it's the third economy in the Eurozone, now in the EU, kind of traditionally has less influence, but, but the fact that Draghi is such a big hitter and so well respected um, could shift that. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting. And obviously our bread and butter is opinion polls. So it'll be interesting to see as well um, how this new government, as they you know pick out the ministers and start making all these political decisions, how that will impact the support for, for all the, the various parties in Italy and also this more bigger picture sense of, of European um, power politics. So we'll, we'll all uh, stay close to that and, and follow those those um, developments. So thank you so much for, for speaking to us again. Um, it's really interesting. It's my pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at europelex.eu um, and at europelex across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at europe underscore lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokouris, and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. 